With dispatch, we are deprived of all of our senses except for one, which is the auditory sense. We can hear what is going on and that is it. We can't see it. We can't smell it. We can't taste it. We can't feel it. So in the absence of those other senses, your brain has a tendency to make up a story. You know, just like physical illness, mental illness can be overcome. We just got to inspire people to believe that. The mental health community and the firearms industry have spent way too much time running parallel to each other without communicating. It's time we change the narrative and destroy the stigma that we both face. Walk the Talk America presents Guns and Mental Health, a podcast for firearms owners, clinicians, and the curious public. Here we are again, Mike Sudini, with our Guns and Mental Health podcast. How are you, sir? I'm good, man. I, I just left you. You did, right? and, and my heart aches. There's a, <laughs> there's a big hole in my life. Actually, it's just a, an absence in the downstairs bedroom where you were staying the last three days. Uh, but we did some good stuff while you were up here, and I'm, I'm super excited to see how it all comes out. We shot some videos, we talked to some people, we had some meetings, and uh, filmed a documentary. And we'll be we'll be really excited. I don't want to tease it too much right now because timing and so forth. But um, yeah, it was a good visit. And today we are with Aaron Young. How well? Uh, how well? Hello. How are you? <laughs> if I can trip over my own words. Hello. Hello. Uh, it's not a it's not a WTTA podcast without a clumsy awkward intro. Yep, always, always. <laughs> just when we, you know, we have Aaron here today, who we just did her show last week. Uh, we're all together all the time. It's all running together. Yeah. So Aaron's a Aaron's a, a public safety dispatcher here in the northern Nevada area. And she is also a member of the board of directors for Nevada Peer Support Network. And I will let you introduce the rest of yourself as you see fit. Welcome. Thank you for having me. It's weird being on this side because usually I'm the one introducing people and asking the questions. So this is going to be a fun treat for me. Um, but I have been in public safety dispatch for 17 years. Um, in May, actually, my anniversary is coming up. Um, I've been a supervisor for eight years, and uh, I am part of the board of directors for the Nevada Peer Support Network, formerly known as the Northern Nevada Peer Support Network. And we're a group of volunteers that have come together to try to help. Um, it started in the Northern Nevada region, getting more mental health resources and helping people organize peer support groups uh, for first responder agencies as well as uh, people who work in hospitals, nurses, doctors, and any of the um, other type of workers who deal with healthcare, as well as uh, social workers and also veterans too. So uh, the idea kind of uh, took a run and now we're kind of expanding throughout the entire state and parts of California. Um, so those are my two major focuses in life right now, work and the network, as well as being a mom and a wife and trying to, oh, can I cuss? Uh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. No. Time yeah. specifically me. <laughs> okay. Keep my shit together through the past year or so, um, you know, COVID and everything, but we, you know, still making it through and just trying to deal and adapt as much as we can. We all want to keep our poop in a group for sure. And, uh, <laughs> 
you also have a podcast. It's called Your Oxygen Mask First. And that's what Mike and I appeared on uh, just a week ago. And we decided to do a, a home and home series, I guess you could call it, with our podcasting. Talk to us a little bit about that, and then we'll uh, dive into the peer support stuff, and and then later the dispatching because that I think dovetails nicely. So tell us about the podcast and how it came to fruition. So the podcast came about about three years ago, almost four, I believe, and it came when I was in a point in my career and my life where I felt like I just wasn't doing enough; that I was really stagnant. And there was a lot of talk about mental health and how dispatchers in particular were being affected by the calls that we take and also interpersonal relationships, as well as the physical and mental effects of shift work and um, just dealing with trauma all the time. It's a lot of things that we experience, but not a whole lot of people talk about, you know, you get your generic EAP referral saying, Hey, you know, this is here if you need it. Or, um, you know, people will whisper about, you know, therapy, the dirty T word, uh, but never really talk about it in a positive light. Um, and I felt like I could do so much in my day-to-day basis for my people at work, but what about everybody else out there? You know, um, I've always, believe it or not, guys, I know this is going to surprise you, but I've been a quiet, shy introvert for most of my life. <laughs> and actually being having my own podcast gave me a voice and gave me a way to talk to people that was a little bit non-threatening because I could just put ideas and interviews and say things out into the void. And for the most part, I got really good feedback on it. So that's why I kept going. So the podcast for me was a bit of my own type of therapy where I could seek out people who had different ideas about modalities of getting people who are in the first responder world. But really, it's focused on the helpers, too, because I didn't want to be just about police, fire and medical and dispatch. Um, There's a whole world of people who give of themselves all the time, but don't either take enough time to take care of themselves or they feel like it's selfish. So I wanted to focus on focusing on the people who are helpers. So, um, you know, social workers, people who are caregivers, who um, take care of elderly uh, family members. Um, I talked to a lot of veterans and that was really, really eye-opening for me as a civilian. Um, And then also talking to spouses and family members of first responders and veterans too, because that's a little bit of a different perspective. So um, as the podcast kind of gained traction. I mean, it's not huge or anything, but I still have loyal listeners and I still have people who regularly ask if they could be on the show and talk about things. And um, it's been great so far. It's a lot of work, as you guys know, but it's very rewarding. Do you know your numbers as far as like downloads per episode and, and who your audience is? It depends on the subject. I have a lot of women, according to my demographics on Anchor, Majority of my listeners are women for a lot of the mental health clinician based things. Um, When I talk about veterans or firefighters or police officers, I get a lot more men. Um, Most everybody is in the United States. I have a couple of people from Canada who listen. Thank you. Canucks. Interesting. And I have um, most of my downloads, depending on the topic, because some people aren't interested in um, veterans if you're not a veteran or you don't know any. Um, so about a hundred downloads is usually my lowest. And then my highest has been close to a thousand per episode. Wow. And those are, it's really strange too, which episodes really take off. I had a really great conversation with a lady who is a suicidologist. 
She's a mental health clinician. Um, I believe she's a PhD and she studies suicide and nothing but suicide. What leads people to commit suicide, the after effects, previous treatments prior to suicide and had like a really great conversation about it. That what didn't leave you with an icky feeling. It was really fascinating. And that one got um, a lot of hits. So I was really proud of that one. What is her name? Who is that person? Um, so her name is Blair Schomburg. She recently got married and changed her last name. And I can't remember off the top of my head. I can look it up for you. Um, but she's based out of the San Diego area. And she ta- uh, talks with veterans a lot. And she studies veterans. Okay. That, yeah. And I ask somewhat selfishly because I want to maybe connect with her for our purposes, mm-hmm. but also, you know, look at her work, but then um, plug you and her episode, mm-hmm. right? Because we want, we want to cross promote stuff because it helps everybody, right? When we, uh, when we mm-hmm. share our information. So that's really cool. I'm glad you're, uh, I'm glad you're doing so well. Cause that's a, that's a pretty successful margin. If you're getting, you know, a thousand downloads an episode, that's a, that's pretty strong, and we might have to look into that anchor thing if it is able to track demographics because we we truly have no idea, and, oh. and I don't have any idea on my other podcast that I've been doing for four years weekly, and uh, you know I've never exceeded more than like probably two hundred downloads on any of those episodes, and um, and I have no clue where they come from or who listens, but I do know we're international because because uh, we get some feedback, and one of the metrics says. Uh, you know, you're number four in Cambodia for, for mental health podcasts. I'm like, yes, I'm big in Cambodia. Uh, but yeah, that's neat. We may have to look into that. So talk a little bit about the, the peer support. Cause there's, there's a couple of different, couple of different types of peer support. And we, we riddled this through when we first talked, like before your, your cast and when we were just meeting each other and I had an eye opening experience. Cause prior to talking to you about it, when I thought peer support, I thought, um, like drug and alcohol recovery, right? Somebody who's, or, or mental health recovery where you've been down the dark path, pulled yourself out and are now assisting others in a peer to peer kind of fashion. And that's something that insurance even pays for in certain circumstances, but your peer support is peers of the field, right? That's what Northern, well, Nevada peer support does. So talk, talk a little bit about that and, and how that um, works, I guess. How do, how do people access it and why they would need to in certain times? So the concept of peer support in first responder and health uh, care has been a, a very small, slow rumble over the past couple of years, but it's really gained traction um, more recently, I would like to say in the past one to two years. And when I originally started researching peer support, I took a class, had no clue what it was and um, thought it was a great idea. But when you try to look for resources on how to build a team or how to talk to people and explain what peer support is, uh, it's really kind of hard to find things when you first Google peer support, you do get a lot of the drug and alcohol um, resources for peer support, the SAMHSA and certain things. Um, but you have to be very specific about what kind of peer support you're looking for. And then it starts bringing up some newer um, information about it. So the concept of peer support, especially for first responders and healthcare fields, is that it's a group of people that have taken certain classes, uh, either given by a mental health professional or um, a peer supporter themselves who has mastered the craft and has also certified to be able to teach others. And when you are in a peer support setting and part of a peer support team, 
what will happen is people who are in your same profession or field or close to it can come to you and you are a safe space. You are a safe person and they can talk to you about anything that their heart desires. And you will not tell anybody unless they uh, meet certain criteria, either uh, they are a threat to themselves as far as suicide or harming themselves in some way. And you have very actionable information that that is a real threat or the same thing goes for harming somebody else. Or if there's any type of uh, child abuse or sexual abuse for a child um, or an adult for the sexual abuse, you still have to tell somebody because, I mean, that is something that can't be kept secret. But for the most part, if you've had um, an uh, alcohol problem, drug problem, a performance issue at work, your um, spouse is leaving you, you're having problems with your kids, you, you don't, you just need to talk to somebody and you need somebody to listen. That's what that peer supporter is supposed to be there for. They're supposed to be an open mind and open ear. And then if you're willing, they can help give you, re- give you resources to help you such as recommend um, therapists or mental health professionals that are competent in their field. So we're talking like trauma informed and first responder competent. And that's really important because, and you as a clinician um, understand this is that we have a tendency as first responders to traumatize the people who are trying to help us um, when it comes to maybe mental health professionals, just because they're not used to some of the things that we will tell them. Like if someone's going through a messy divorce, they hear that all day long and can cope with that. But if you talk to them about the grotesque death of a child to get that off of your chest, you wind up crumbling them if Mm -hmm. they don't have the proper training and know what they're getting into to see people like us. So, uh, and those people are very few and far between. So the peer support will also keep a list of resources of people who are trauma informed and are first responder um, competent and are ready to take us on as well as things like financial services. If people are having some problems, gambling addiction services, sex addict um, services, and these things are usually vetted. So that means that you're not sending somebody out into the void saying, well, here's the resources I found online. You should try it there. They have the confidence to know that this resource has been vetted and that their confidentiality will be maintained. And it is a good resources that will probably help them. And so they have a lot of confidence in going to a peer supporter and talking to them and telling them these deep, dark secrets or these things that have happened to them or that they're feeling and getting some resources and some help. But a lot of times just the act of telling someone something is enough to make somebody feel better so that they can go about their day, go about their job, go home and not burden their family about some of these things that they're experiencing, which are unique to the job. Um, Peer supporters are trained to handle a variety of things where it's job specific trauma, like having a bad call, seeing a dead body, Uh, Being involved in an officer-involved shooting, peer support is usually one of the first people there to help. And then also uh, bad fires, citizen deaths and fires, and then bad calls for dispatchers too, because it's hard for us when we take bad calls. And I'm sure we'll talk about this later, but um, as soon as you hang up the phone with a bad call, you have to pick up the next call. You don't get to leave and cry you got to keep going. So that's good to have peer supporters that are already trained who are working around you where, when you do have a second to step off, you can step off together and unload and then go back to work. Take me through the process. Let's, let's say I'm um, an EMT 
right? And I come across the peer support, you know, number and I make the decision to, to reach out to get help. What happens then? I would call the number. I would identify who I am and, and what I do. It varies from each workplace or jurisdiction or each organization because peer support has to be flexible and adaptable to each place. And the other thing too is we really don't want management being involved in a lot of it. So peer support groups have a tendency to run themselves and are given a lot of free reign by management too. We don't need to know what's happening, but just make sure it gets done and tell us what you need. So it could be a phone number that somebody calls and says, hey, I need help. It could be a supervisor or a manager um, who is involved in an incident, like a field supervisor um, who knows that someone has suffered a trauma and gets a peer supporter to that person without them even asking. It's an employee who is suffering saying, hey, I need help from peer support to a supervisor who then coordinates with the peer support team to get them someone um, the peer or the the employee could go to someone who that they know is peer support trained and talk to them individually without getting a coordinator involved. There's so many different ways, and it's all depending on how that team is set up so that um, confidentiality is kept and is important. And then that person can get help quickly as well. A lot of peer support teams have on call. So whoever is on call for that day or that night will get the information and, and handle it if the peer supporter feels like they're not a good fit for this person, they can call another peer supporter in to help. So it's, it's very fluid and adaptable. There's not a one size fit, fits all method for peer support. Um, but, and that's the best way to get things done is just kind of fly by the seat of your pants. Yeah. Cause I noticed a lot of people kind of, I guess they don't want to go into this, like ring the alarm situation. So they don't ever even call the number. Mm-hmm. Right? Maybe the person's just not in like massive crisis at that moment, but they're afraid if they call some kind of number that it's going to just, you know, bring people to the house and everything like that. Um, you know, I can imagine that could be a concern for some people, especially, you know, ones that don't want to lose their job or their clearance or their ability to carry a firearm. Yes. And that is huge within especially the police community. Um, and most first responders is that competency and that uh, fit for fitness for duty. So this is why I believe, you know, years and years and years, my grandfather was a um, LA County Sheriff deputy. My dad was a firefighter here in town and nobody ever talked about mental health or the bad calls. Um, my dad talked to my mom all the time and would tell her about the things that happened, but shielded my sister and I from that. Um, there was a call when I think it was eight or nine where a little girl got ran over and died on the side of the road. And my dad wouldn't speak to me for a month. And I couldn't figure out why later. My mom told me it was because that girl looked exactly like me and he couldn't bear to look at me because he would get those feelings. So if we had had something like peer support or um, just a better conversation about mental health and getting help after those calls, um, my mom wouldn't have had to be traumatized by the things that he would tell her when he come, came home because he, she was the only one he could talk to. You don't tell the guys in the fire station that that messed you up because they're going to think that, you know, you're um, uh, a softie or, you know, you're not tough enough. You can't handle this job because, you know, get used to it. So, um, and my dad was lucky that he had my mom to talk to because a lot of people don't have anybody. So that's the great thing about peer support and why it's making such a, a big statement is that you 
have people that you can trust who are sworn to confidentiality and that you can talk to, to get this off your chest. Um, and then give you resources to people who, if your peer supporter can't handle, because, you know, peer supporters, we're not clinicians, we're not trained and we're not doctors. We're just there to listen to you. But if you need something bigger than what we can give you, we can give you those resources to get you there. We can make um, doctor's appointments for you. We can call the clinician and say, hey, I have this person there in crisis. Can you get them in? How fast can you get them in? Do you take this insurance? You know, we can be that, um, that also that logistics person for them too, when things are rough and it's easy to say, okay, well, here's a number for a therapist, but a lot of people can't make that phone call. I can make that phone call for you. I can drive you there. I'll sit in the car while you talk to them. I can make sure you get what you need. That's another part of peer support as well. I was, uh, just scrolling the, the peer support website and, um, I, what I really appreciate is that you you make the distinction between peer support and where the the limits are, where where the that capacity ends, and have you know a referral has to be made out. It's very similar to what pastors go through, where they have to acknowledge the limits of their capacities, and then a, a referral to professional needs to be made. So you know it's one thing to you know look at somebody's arm and you know after a a, a fight or something and say yeah it looks a little swollen. You probably probably sprained your wrist, put some ice on it, you know, versus, uh, I've never seen anything like that. You better go to the urgent care. Right. And I, and I thought it's that gray area. I think a lot of people are really uncomfortable in, especially if you don't have a, a strong enough ego. Uh, and I say strong as opposed to fragile ego, fragile ego people. It sounds a little paradoxical. Fragile ego <laughs> people are the, like the insecure ones who like argue all the time and insist they're right. Strong egoed people can typically receive more feedback and, and be humble. So it usually doesn't sound the way that you think it should, but the strong egoed people can say, uh, this is, this is beyond my capacity. And what I really like about the website is there's a list of licensed clinicians on there. And there's a lot of them are my favorite people in our profession here locally. So you guys definitely have a, a good, strong pool to, uh, to which you can refer, we got to get Zephyr Wellness added on there at some point, <laughs> but um, but I want to I want to ask about I guess the um, it, in my head it sounds like counseling but without a treatment plan, right? It's like somebody's really knowledgeable of the field, really knowledgeable of the, the work environment, and trained. So it's not just gossip, right? It's 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 structured. But it's not uh, it's not the time limited goal oriented stuff that I think we might be used to at at my level. Is that is that about right? Is that accurate? I I think so. It we do a lot of peer supporting um, at work, and you don't even realize that's what you're doing, whether right. you're trained or not. So it's an informal way of uh, like a critical incident debriefing, mm-hmm. whether it's a bad call or trauma that you received at work. It could also be for performance. Um, something's going on with your boss. You need to bounce it off of somebody who's objective, but who is also familiar with the situation, but also about personal things too: your husband, your kids, um, your family, your finances. We're not experts. We're not going to fix the problem for you, but we'll listen so that you can process it and then help you get um, someone who is more qualified than us to get you some help and also help you take those steps. We're going to go that extra step to make the phone call or email somebody for you or drive you somewhere. I think that's awesome. And I love that it's emerging because 10 years ago, 11, 12 years, 12 years ago, (laughs) whenever it was, (laughs) I was in school, 14. I don't know. Uh, It was a long time ago when I was in grad school and we were learning about the, the boundaries and limitations of licensure and 
practice and so forth, we got it beat into our skulls. You don't practice out of scope. And what happened, I, I think this is intentional in the in the school setting, is they intentionally make the walls really tight. Like the, your scope, your lane is really, really narrow. So it's like, don't practice medicine. Right. I don't have a medical license. By the way, don't even have an opinion about medication. It's like, well, I don't know. That sounds a little irresponsible <laughs> if I'm not even jumping in when something seems amiss, right? Especially if I have training. So I'm wondering here, did you get any pushback in the beginning or or when this first emerged with people going, I don't know about that. It sounds like I'm practicing without a license and I don't want to get in trouble. Did that ever happen? There are people who are interested in the idea of peer support, but also worry about the liability. And that's where the training is so important because the training teaches you not to go outside of your lane and not to take that extra, extra step to diagnose your best friend or to recommend something that is outside of your scope. The, The steps are very clear as to what you do when you have an encounter, how you listen to them, the things that you need to identify as red flags, and then also how you refer people to um, those different resources that being there, you know, helping them make phone calls, driving them, um, helping them arrange things. That's more of a, a friendly process. Mm-hmm. Um, that's going that extra mile and that extra step, but um, we are not here to clinically diagnose you with anything. We're not here to save you from yourself. That's your job. We're just here to be here to help you process some things and um, make sure that there's no red flags going up where we need to bring in additional intervention. That would be those higher levels. That pleases me because for years I've been, I think I've been seen a little bit as a, as a pariah among my own peer group because I advocated for people who are not held to the, you know, elite standard of master's degree with license uh, to, to, to take in a more active role. Uh, And I, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't take myself too seriously. I say that pretty pretty regularly. I do take the work pretty seriously, but I also acknowledge that humanity got here somehow without our profession over the last 40 or 50,000 years because uh, we've only been around for about 100. So somehow we got here and humans have been supporting each other for a really long time without licenses and degrees and the blessing of the state. So I am super stoked that that's going on because it takes advantage of people who would otherwise be doing it anyway in the hallways and maybe putting some some guardrails on it and, and adding some, some structure and some intentionality. So that's, I'm stoked. I'm really thrilled about that. Is there, so question is, is there paperwork? Do they complete log notes or anything? Or is there a case file or, or do we track this in any way? So this is very tricky and it is dependent upon each organization and their peer support team and how it's set up. Paper trail is discouraged because of confidentiality. Um, but a lot of management and upper levels of uh, different organizations want a return of investment on the time and sometimes money it takes for peer support to pay people overtime to respond to incidents, um, to hold a critical incident debriefing or to have peer support respond if there is a bad um, incident or a mass casualty or um, some sort of very bad disaster. Um, Also, to pay for training because right. training is not free as much as we, as the peer support network tries to bring in training that will um, either the presenters will present for free or we get donations. So we will pay for it. 
um, it's it's big money to trade people in this realm. Right. So a lot of organizations don't really want to put out that money without showing some sort of proof that it actually works and that there is no liability to them, um, which you can never say anything is no liability. It doesn't exist. So um, where was I going with that? <laughs> Somewhere. What are paper trail. Trail. <laughs> uh, I, I'm actually kidding. No, you answered the question. Oh, paper trail. Paper trail. Pa- paper's discouraged. I get that. I appreciate yes. it. Um, how but we do-, do, we will track as far as a tally, tally point of encounters to show we had 100 encounters over the year. We made, you know, 30 referrals outside. Okay. That's so it. Is that, how the, is that how the success is measured? Because that, with Walk Talk America, we get you know, people always ask us all the time, like, how successful is this? And, you know, there, it's always an issue of tracking when, you know, you're like free and anonymous, <laughs> you know, or <laughs> like, you know, some things become anecdotal, right? You know, they're successful because, you know, you see the emails and you're, you're not supposed to share that stuff or you're not going to share that stuff just because it doesn't feel right. So is that how they measure the success, the amount of calls and then the amount of referrals? Right. Some organizations, I can't speak to all of them, but I know the general idea consensus is that there is some tracking. It's anonymous um, and it is basically a tally mark as to there was a call, the incident was resolved, and then how many referrals were made out. So you can see um, that there is some sort of progress as far as people who are um, making people go outside of peer support and not leaning on peer support. That's another thing people worry about is that well, I'm not going to make an appointment with a therapist because why do I have to? I have you for free. Right. And so the, the fear is, is that some people are going to um, not abuse the peer support system, but take advantage of having that person to basically be there, there at their beck and call all the time. I've never personally seen it happen. I don't know about other organizations. So um, that tracking for referrals kind of helps saying like, yes, we're making these contacts. We're sending people out and we're getting a good uh, return on our investment. The problem with tracking, especially when you're talking about life-saving organizations or programs is that how can you put a tally mark on life? How can you prove that you saved a life um, when it's not tangible? You know, I talk to people all the time. What if what I said just kind of off the cuff like what I said that was encouraging, or I pushed them to go in a different direction or recommended like, Hey, you know, it seems like you're having a rough day. Like I have this great therapist that's super confidential. She has office hours from like two to four, like I'll get you off the floor. Why don't you go see her? And then they go, what if they decided not to kill themselves that night? You, you can't track that. You don't know. So it's really hard to say, tangibly, we saved this amount of lives. We, we, you know, pulled this many people out of alcoholism. We saved this many marriages. You don't know, but I know in our hearts that we are doing the right thing. Yeah. I I think the way that you start to do that is you, you measure the culture with surveys, um, qualitative analyses where you, you interview people and you do, um, reports, you know, annually on mood of organization, right? So, the, the data guy inside me is saying, that's great that you marked all the referrals, but all you're doing is comparing that against a proverbial zero before the program was launched. Uh, that's cool that they're coming to you, but how do we know that it's actually working? And and if I were, if, if I were a funder, I would want to know more, uh, I guess, metrically how 
it is working or isn't working. And I think what need, you know, what probably should be done is surveys. And I don't know if those things are completed mm-hmm. or not, but I'd like to know the temperature of my own organization. I mean, I can walk through the hall and think that my employees are doing well because they make jokes and they tease each other and they hang out after work. But, but do I really know? And, and if I really want to know, I have to, I have to collect some actual data with some testimony and some, some open text box narrative that says, Hey, I love working here for these reasons, but I don't for these other reasons. Otherwise I am subject to my own confirmation biases that say, yeah, Jake runs a great ship at Zephyr Wellness. You know, it's like, of course I do. Just ask me. I'll awesome tell you. Awesome year. <laughs> yeah. I still haven't gotten one of those yet. Maybe I'll ask. <laughs> no, I, I think that that is a great idea. And I think, um, people have been hesitant to write things down. So maybe if there's a way to explain it the way that you explained it, I I think that that would be uh, beneficial moving forward. And maybe some organizations are doing that. Uh, The ones that I know of that have their individual peer support teams, as far as I know, just do that. um, It's a mystery tracking. So... (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, it's it's tough, and it's an imprecise science if it is, and uh, I think it's more of an art. Uh, but when you're when you're doing something brand new for the first time, Mike can attest to this. We we don't know. We're trying to prove the null, right? Like with guns, mm-hmm. you you only hear about the people who die from guns. You don't hear about the lives saved from guns. Uh, first of all, it's not sexy to write about that, and it doesn't trigger the limbic system in the same way to get clicks and advertising revenue. But it's also just you know like if, if I if I you know, uh, stave off an intruder, uh, or, or some perceived attack upon my family in the middle of the, the, the city that doesn't get logged anywhere. Right. So, so it's like, well, how do we know that guns help people more than they hurt people? We don't, cause we're trying to prove the, the theory in a way that can't ever be proven. Uh, with this, it's the same thing until 2018 or whenever this thing was formed, it's like, uh, well, police departments and fire departments and sheriff's offices and dispatch units and uh, paramedic services, they all got along fine, right? I don't know. (laughs) But we're starting something now and we're bringing it from scratch and you need to have some patience and, you know, for the longitudinal results to come in. Yeah. I don't know. Notoriously, like the police department and fire department always feud because you've got them calling each other hose draggers and I don't even know what, but the cool thing about peer support is when you're able to integrate your teams with other agencies that you can get people who don't know you, which is beneficial because I think when, especially if you're coming from a smaller organization, they don't trust anybody because you've worked with these people so long. I know all of your business. I know all of the horrible catty things that you've said. I know who's sleeping with who, who wants to sleep with who. You know, why would you come to me and ask me for support? There's that trust issue, especially when you don't have a whole lot of other people around you. So the great thing is when you're able to um, network with other teams is that I could get somebody from a, a different police agency to talk to a dispatcher or a firefighter who's who's friendly with the police officer to talk to um, them after some sort of traumatic in, uh, event so that they don't know their whole life. They don't know their whole story and all their business. They're just there to listen to what's happening now and help them make sense of it so that they can either move forward or get help. So that's another benefit of it too, is that you have like the cross agencies, but also cross disciplinary, as long as you're kind of within that same first responder hood or um, hospital healthcare worker, where you deal with a lot of very fast trauma, um, you kind of are interchangeable within the peer support realm. I'm going to take this back to something you you mentioned 
to us that blew me away, which was I hadn't considered the ripple effect of what dispatchers go through. Um, that was one thing. And, and I don't know why I didn't consider that. But when you described suicides specifically that happen within the first responder realm, you know those people. We only think, you know, suicide has a ripple effect among family members and community. Okay, we get that. But then there's all the behind the scenes people. So we're not talking, at least to my knowledge, maybe except in very small circles like this one, nobody in the community really talks about the dispatcher who took the call for the person they know. And then the EMTs and the fire who arrived to the scene or the, or if it's in their jurisdiction, the, the police who showed up to see their own brethren deceased by their own hand. You know, so like we talk about, yeah, suicide's awful and it affects eight times more people than you think or whatever the, the, the stat is there. I don't, I don't get into that stuff, but, um, but then we're failing to account for the, the emotional burden that it takes and the psychological toll that's, that's incurred upon the people who are actually tending to the, the initial phone calls. Speak a little bit about that, if you would, please. Uh, so I think for a lot of people who have never firsthand experienced suicide, whether it's somebody that they know, a friend of somebody they know, um, it's hard for them to really process what happens when someone takes their own life. I personally have had, uh, two, uh, two dispatchers who have died by suicide with a firearm. Um, one was a really good friend of mine, which kind of also was the catalyst for me, uh, sparking the podcast because in my own grief and not understanding how to process why she did what she did and how she did it. I wanted to learn more and learn more is by talking to people. Um, also I had a, one that had died by firearm suicide. Um, and then another one who, uh, was in a horrible car crash and, um, was considered kind of a suicide just because of the, how reckless she was being. Um, and then also since those, um, a couple more first responder suicides where I might not have been working with them or knew them personally, um, but I was in the realm of the people who did. And so how those people who, new and love these other first responders, it ripples down and it affects us. But the thing is when you live in the community that you work for and that you care and love about, you are going to experience at least one, one or more of people that you know and love calling in for help and having to handle that. So when um, Shauna died, she lived in our jurisdiction. We had to take her husband's phone call I had to pull the recordings as the supervisor in charge of that and listen to it over and over again and give it to the detectives. So you're involved in the process and it puts you so much closer to what is happening. Sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad because you have answers a lot faster than if you um, experienced a loved one or a friend or family member who took their life Um there's a lot of unanswered questions where we got some of that um, information quickly because we were involved. We were there handling it, helping the officers handle it. Um, but at the same time, being so close to it, it hurts a whole lot more. And then it's the ripple effect to where um, a lot of people identify as their job. I, I introduced myself as a dispatcher, a, su a supervisor, um, and I introduced myself as a mom and a wife last because uh, subconsciously, maybe that's where I'm at. Like when you are in the first responder hood in public safety, 
you feel a calling to help people, that's who you are. That is your identity. Mm -hmm. So when you find a brother or sister, even if you didn't personally know them has done that, you feel a part of yourself as am I feeling the same way they did? Like they did this thing and they are no longer here. Will I ever get to that point? You know, and you want the answers. Why did they do this? Could we have stopped it? Um, why, why did this happen? And is this going to happen to me? Am I going to have to suffer through another friend, another coworker's death? If I'm not actively out there helping people with mental health, you know, um, am I going to take my, my mother's 911 call with my father vapor locks? Like, you start to process these things and almost kind of um, either you learn to disassociate and compartmentalize so that nothing will hurt you or touch you, even the good stuff, um, or you become a wreck at the slightest drop of a hat. So um, there's, there's just so many effects. I can't even like, I'm so squirreling right now because I can't even articulate how suicide affects people in ways that you didn't know. And when I first started the podcast, um, my very first one, I feel kind of shameful about it now. And I, I want to either take it down or redo it, maybe do an, an addition because I was so hurt by the loss of Shauna and when she had killed herself. Um, and I didn't know how to understand why she did what she did. So I wanted to educate people saying, when you take yourself out of the world, you're ending your own pain, but you're creating more pain for everybody else you know, why aren't people who are survivors of suicide who tried to kill themselves, but lived now going out and talking to other people, um, about their experience. I don't hear a whole lot of that because a lot of people don't want to talk about it. Kind of like the victim impact panels for drunk driving, um, because people think suicide is a very selfish thing. And I thought it was a very selfish thing because I didn't understand it talking to Blair, talking to all of these people who have, you know, I, I feel like I talk to majority of people I talk to have been suicidal or have made an attempt at some point in their life. And now I realize it's not, it's not selfish. It's that overwhelming pain that they want to stop. And at that point, they're not thinking about how it's going to affect other people because some people believe that everyone else is better off without them. It's that we, that perception that, that's their reality. And, and how do you make them change that reality about themselves in the world? You know, when you were telling the story about like the, the two ways people go, right. Like they compartmentalize or, you know, they could just explode. And I think about like the firearms community and why we're so afraid to, to really come forward when tragic things happen. So like with suicide, you know, we're getting a little better at it, but over the years, it was kind of like you compartmentalized and you moved on and you shut up because it could be weaponized against us. Right. Mm -hmm. Or we, we kind of bonded together in that. Um, How many people do you think can't deal with it? They have to, because they're just afraid to lose their job. Right. Cause I could see that moment where it's like, if you, you know, here, here you are in grief and you know, who's judging how long you're allowed to stay there? You know, like that's, that's a big deal. You know, like, does, do you think that happens behind the scenes? Like, Oh, I think all the time. I think that people who are in a first responder capacity, um, either they're discouraged, maybe not so much nowadays, but definitely in the past, but um, that long lineage of being discouraged to show your emotion, to show your feelings, show your weakness, because that means that you are not fit for duty. Um, if you can't handle this job, if you're emotional and, um, you know, you, you 
maybe you should think of something else. Maybe you should find a different career. Um, how can I trust you to do your job? How can I trust that you have my back if you are not emotionally stable enough because you are upset about something because you're grieving? And we are seeing that a lot with the police state right now is because of um, all of these things that are happening. A lot of people are um, jumping to conclusions about the state of mind of a particular officer or first responder when bad things happen. Right. So um, what if people were getting the support and the mental health that they need and knowing that it's okay to break down, knowing it's okay to process an event and that you're not going to lose your job instead of putting these people on the street who are masking, who probably need some help and who make may make pretty bad decisions because it's not okay for them to get help. I think this is that dichotomy that we're really stuck in right now with first responders and especially policing is that people will say, well, I don't want a cop who's bipolar. I don't want a a depressive cop who's going to come to my door. I don't want to work with someone who has a mental illness or who has alcoholism or who has a problem. How can I trust them? So these people are going to shut up and they're not going to go get the help. They're not going to talk to their peers to get help. And they're going to put that mask on and they're going to go out on the street and maybe make a fatal mistake. So what do we want world? Do we want the people who are being taken care of and putting them in a healthier, even better place than they were before, who can make really good connections in the community because they've been there themselves. They've suffered with things themselves. They've been depressed. They've had mental illness that is under control now. Um, they, they've had addiction and got the support and came out of it so they can connect with the people that they deal with so much better. Don't you want that? Or do you want someone who's hiding themselves and and is going to erupt one day in a really bad way? Either they're going to kill themselves or they're, they could shoot somebody. You, you, you cover a lot there. And, um, I'm going to try to pick this apart. Uh, there, there was at least five or six things that I want to touch on. One is really, uh, easy to, to address, which is something Christian Conti says it's you know, there's two types of people in this world. There's people with issues and there's dead people. Okay. That seems like it would be easy to validate the struggles of another human being irrespective of the uniform they wear or, or don't wear. Right. And we've seen this go through, I, I've seen it ripple through social media where people are concerned about the mental health of the therapists. That's nice of you to think. I'm also trained to deal with that. And I'm trained to compartmentalize things or better yet, if I don't compartmentalize it, cause I don't actually advocate for that because it means you're not dealing with it. I deal with it very quickly and I don't carry other stuff with me from one appointment to the next or one call to the next or in person to the next. I leave it where it's supposed to be, which is right in the lap of the individual with whom it belongs. Um, that would be an ideally healthy way to do that. Now, knowing that, it's nice that I have compassion uh, or that people are expressing it toward me as a counselor who deals with hearing ugly things all the time. Um, but I think people are using that as a reason not to come in also. So not only is there stigma, it's like, well, I don't want to burden you any more than you're already burdened. <laughs> like, oh, man, I signed on for this. And so to that point, we've got our uh, first responder community who see you know ugly things all day long and they get paid for it. And hopefully they're well-trained. I don't know that they are uh, because I – help conduct some of those trainings with the Northern Nevada law enforcement Academy. I've been doing it for three years now and I can, I can testify that, uh, it's getting better. Uh, we've now introduced a crisis intervention training week to that Academy that didn't exist, uh, six, seven years ago, but the, 
level of comprehensiveness that is required for somebody to leave work at work and leave home at home when going to work is not covered. It's not, it's not implemented. And that's a matter of dollars and cents. And I think that's to your point about, you know, Hey world, what do we want out of these people? Well, it would be nice to up the budgets to pay for people like me so that we're not having to rely on continual volunteers. That would be ideal. Um, because the, the, the pool of volunteers is only so deep, but here's the other issue. I think the public in, this is going to get into psychological territory. What we project onto the first responders is a hero motif. It's an it's an archetype that's buried deep within us. It's, we have many archetypes: wise old man and mother and and hero and victim and all this stuff. We project that onto these people, and and in that archetype is an infallibility of sorts that says they're not allowed to be human. I need them to be stronger than a human, and the simple fact is they can't be. So in Insofar as we answer that question, hey world, what do you want these people to be? You know, healthy or or unhealthy. It almost, I would say, it certainly actually asks the community, the taxpayers, the the recipients of the care, to align their beliefs with the reality that these people are not the archetypal heroes who are bulletproof and nine feet tall and throw lightning bolts out their fists. They're human beings who just happen to choose that career. And I think when we blow up that level of, of what we would call an introjected belief system, we have to replace it with something that gives the same degree of comfort and confidence that the previous thing did. And, and it's really hard to convince the communities that, that your, your responders are human, right? And therefore, they need human attention. And when here's where it gets really screwy. When we acknowledge that, we have to acknowledge it in ourselves. And that's really frightening. It's super frightening to acknowledge your own foibles, your own weaknesses, your own shortcomings, your own blind spots. And, and I think collectively, we just don't do that. We don't, we don't make that acknowledgement that, that these people are just people. And as a result, we're losing them, uh, not just to suicide, but we're losing good people to dropping out of the career because we're treating them like they should be perfect, smashing them when they aren't, and then failing to give them the resources to recover. And the last point that I think you touched on is the idea that whatever you're struggling with is temporary. And I, I think we got to get the narrative out of our heads that once sick, always sick. It's not true. So, you know, I don't want a depressed cop on my streets. It's like, well, yeah, you, you actually do because that means he's in touch with his human side and he's working through it. Or I don't want, a, I don't want an anxious dispatcher. Well, it's that dispatcher is going to be anxious anyway. And so if she's acknowledging it and seeking care, that's the best possible outcome. You know, the worst possible outcome is that you've got the depressed cop or the anxious dispatcher not attending to it. <laughs> and then to, to the, to your point about making a mistake on duty, the reason those mistakes happen is because if you watch any of my, uh, emotional functioning videos, we don't want to act out of limbic. We want, we don't want to act out of emotionality because that's when we do things we regret because we're not making conscientious decisions. We're not using logic and reason. We want to act out of frontal lobe, but if we're so overwhelmed with the job or the home or the impending divorce or the kid moving off to college, I mean, it can be, it can go anywhere from very small to very large, but if it affects you and you're in that limbic mode, when the call comes in, you're not going to be of right mind. So that's the reason that this, we don't just kick this around for no reason. It's like, oh, mental health, everybody should be mentally healthy. Yeah, sure. That sounds good. But why? Why is because we don't want to be acting out of emotion. 
Because then we we make mistakes. We're not thinking clearly, literally, neurologically. So I appreciate you covering all that. It's really, really important. It's, it, it, may, it, it matters. Like, it means a lot. Yeah. I, I, well, sorry, Aaron, to cut you off. But I kind of want to – you blew my mind when we talked the one time and you, and you talked about it's all audio, right, as yeah. a dispatcher. And I thought about that after we stopped, you know, got off the call. I was thinking about, like, War of the Worlds. You know, I heard about that when I was a kid, right? With how how audio, just the radio, like made the whole world go crazy. Um, you know, for people that know that story, uh, take the listeners through kind of what you're what you were talking about, right? Like how you have to get onto that next call, and you don't get closure. I mean, yeah. it it could be ending in screaming, boom, out next call. You know. Yeah. Um, first, really quick, because I kind of got on a um, unfiltered, passionate rant just there. No, it was really good, though. I just I just want to express that I am I am so passionate about it I, because I've just seen so many people that I personally know um, suffer. And I'm in contact with a lot of different people from different dispatch centers and first responder jobs from all over the country. So when I'm talking about this, I'm talking about my own personal experience, my own personal passion. I am no way representing any municipality or organization, and I'm not speaking to any in specifically. I'm just making generalizations or things that come from my heart because I don't want to get in trouble. But back to uh, your question about the audio thing. Uh, A lot of people don't realize the day-to-day functions of a dispatcher. Uh, We are federally classified as secretarial staff by the the government. So the government uh, believes that we sit and type and answer phone calls all day, which is true. However, the nature of the phone calls and the fastness in which we type is completely different to someone who is an office assistant. And I mean, no hate to office uh, personnel. You guys all do a great job and everybody needs you. Our, um, I know an office assistant and who she's amazing, amazing staff. Um, but uh, we are slowly starting to become into the realm of being considered first responders. We call our, ourselves first responders because we kind of are the first first responders. When you need help, you call 911, you would get a dispatcher 100%. and they will ask you questions. And you might think that, oop, that is super annoying and that we're just trying to get up in your business. Um, but those are things that we have to do. And uh, the problem with trauma and dispatchers is that when you're out and about, if you're on a scene, a bad accident, I actually drove by a horrible accident today where the one car was on its side. Um, and imagine yourself as the firefighter being there. You can see the car that is on its side. You can smell the gasoline leaking from the car. You can hear somebody crying because they're injured. You can see all of the traffic backed up and um, the police arriving on scene and onlookers. Your brain has a full, complete picture of what is going on in that in that moment of time. You can process it and you can get to work knowing exactly what you need to do. And when you leave that scene, for the most part, your brain has processed it and you know filed it away in your little filing cabinets and you're on to the next thing. With dispatch, we are deprived of all of our senses except for one, which is the auditory sense. We can hear what is going on and that is it. We can't see it. We can't smell it. We can't taste it. We can't feel it. So in the absence of those other senses, your brain has a tendency to make up a story because it needs to fill in all of those other stimuli 
before it can package that whole thing up and put it in the filing cabinet and move on to the next thing. So a lot of times when dispatchers are hearing atrocious, horrible, scary things um, on the other end, if they don't know exactly what happened, like what did the scene look like? Um, Was there blood everywhere? What was the position of the car? What did the car look like? Um, Or even just the outcome, what happened? Because what I heard on this call, I swear someone was getting murdered. And then the officers clear the call and it was solved at scene and nobody was arrested and nobody was taken to the hospital. You know, you, your brain will think up the worst case scenario. And that is what you live with because you are not getting that full picture and you don't have time to stop and ask the officer, Hey, what happened on scene? Because you're already 40 calls deep. Um, the thing about a dispatch job is that it is never ending from the time you walk onto the floor and plug in to the di- time that you sign out and you get relieved. Uh, for the most part, depending on your organization and where you live, it is call to call to call. So you could make, you might take um, a baby not breathing and the mom's giving CPR uh, or a house fire or someone who just got shot. And as soon as the officers or the ambulance gets on scene, you hang up, you get the barking dog call. Or you get the call about someone who is upset because someone cut them off in traffic and they followed them. Um, It's a variety of different things. You are the catch-all for the police department, the fire department, or any other organization that you serve. So you get everything from the worst homicide in the history of man to um, I am mad because I got a parking ticket and it's your fault. Yeah, it's almost like watching 25 short films with no conclusion. Right. Like the, 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 the short film could end at any time, like the end of the Sopranos. <laughs> right. It just went black. Um, it goes beyond that, though, too, because you did tell a story uh, where you got called into court. I mean, so sometimes you can be mm-hmm. called back into certain things. Right. Yes. Depending on um, the 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 legal system and where the dispatcher is at. Sometimes they'll take recordings of the 911 call and play them. And that is uh, a good enough for a testimony. Sometimes it's not. And depending on the case, especially maybe if it's a homicide or a violent crime, that dispatcher has to go in and represent that call, listen to it in court with the judge and the jury and the defendant, and then certify that, yes, I took this call. That is my voice. But then you have to relive it. And also maybe look at the person who committed the crime, you know, a couple of years later because of how um, the time frame in the legal system, it's usually like one or two years when it actually comes to court, you know, look at that person and listen to the call for service. So it's, it's fascinating. And it's, it's um, you're still not getting that closure though. It's really weird. What is unique to um, dispatch that the audience may not know compared to other, Uh you know, responders? Uh, Depending on what kind of position you're working, you're tethered to a desk and you're sitting for 10, 12, 14 hours a day. Yes, you get your lunch breaks. You you can get up and you switch positions sometimes, uh, depending if you're coming from the phone to a radio position, different um, actual workstations. But for the most part, like, I don't know, you can get up and you can walk around and, you know, visit with your people, um, go outside. You know, we have uh, certain dispatchers in organizations will have two 30 minute breaks, an hour long break um, or 15s. And otherwise you're sitting in a room. Some uh, dispatch centers don't even have windows and you are with computers and electronics and um, 
the same people almost every day. So um, there is a lot of uh, concerns for dispatchers as far as physical weight as yeah. or uh, physical health, as well as mental health, because um, you're working shift work and shift work can lead to coronary disease and also certain types of cancer and diabetes, but also you're not getting any vitamin D. I am very vitamin D deficient um, because I'm, you know, working in a cave sometimes. Yeah. And then also to uh, the constant stress and then, um, you know, bad eating habits because you kind of have to pick something to eat that is really quick to eat. So either you can eat while you're working or eat in a 30 minute or a 15 minute time period. So it's, um, it's, it's interesting. And then when pe- citizens and other people from different walks of life come in and they do an observation, even sometimes police officers and firefighters, they'll sit and they'll leave and they will say, I am so glad I don't have to do this job. I don't know how you do it because it is so fast paced all the time. And then other times it will be dead. And then you don't know what to do with yourself because you're always hypervigilant. You're waiting for the next thing. And then you can't even sit with yourself in those slower moments because you're ramped up. You're Mm -hmm. ready to go. Mm -hmm. What's the next thing? Who am I talking to next? Um, you know, the cortisol and the adrenaline, you burn out your adrenal glands. It's just crazy. There's a lot that uh, people need to know about physical health as it pertains to mental well-being. And you touched on most of it. How are you, how do you cope? Like, do, do, do they, have they implemented like those, um, those, those little pedal bike things that <laughs> sit under the desk? I'm being serious. Like, or, or can you stand and take and do the same thing? Or that, um, I, like, I don't know how to get around something like that. That sounds positively wretched uh, yeah nervous energy like you think about that yeah. some people like if you took away my hands i won't be able to talk so <laughs> that, italians probably even jake you know that about me italians. But, I mean, it's uh it just seems yeah like how do uh, there, there must be ways like you pass out stress balls or <laughs> your hands are busy because you're typing most of the time. And uh, some people that I know, dispatchers type upwards of 75 words per minute up to like 120. Like wow. some are freak crazy. Uh, you just have to be able to keep up and time is of the essence. And there are time constraints and um, uh, there are standards like national standards, NFPA, uh, the fire, fire, National Fire Protection Association, they have standards for dispatchers. Um, so time is of the essence you really can't really stop to think because you let your training kick in to move forward because time is so fast. So as far as hands go and you're talking to people, you're usually typing. Um, A lot of places now do have those ergonomic desks where you can raise them and you can stand to type. Sometimes it's a little hard when you're working a radio channel because one foot has to work a pedal while you're typing. Um, But it's some people get around that. Some municipal, yeah, some agencies have installed uh, bikes um, and they might have a little bit slower call or radio volume. So you could pull like this, um, this half of a pedal bike up to the desk and you can like p- bike as you're typing. Um, there are some places that do have treadmills to stick under the desk and it will go maybe two miles per hour, but it just kind of keeps you moving. Um, our place has a small gym. So when you do take a break, you can go downstairs and walk um, or on the treadmill or lift some weights. Um, I, I re- definitely recommend walking if it's safe to do so on breaks, depending on where different centers are located at, um, if it's safe to go outside. Um, some places are located inside a police station. Um, so usually you have people uh, are 
not very police friendly hanging outside of a police station. So if you're not sworn and you don't have a badge or a gun, it might not be a good idea. But um, more places and more organizations are doing more to recognize the physical health of people. And um, it, that has changed a lot. But still, uh, I think people are surprised at how much we actually just sit. What's the alcoholism or addiction prevalence in your profession? I'm not sure. Again, that's not something we talk about. Hmm. Um, I have not seen any studies or um, any literature come out that I'm aware of. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I just haven't seen it. Um, I would say that it might be on par with a police or firefighter. Maybe not as much, but um, I know it, it It does exist. Anecdotally, it's you've just seen not it. one of those. Like you've seen yeah, it anecdotally. I, yeah. And when I go to conference and go to different classes, they do talk about it and present it. So it's there because we're talking about it being a problem, but um, I don't think people forget to research us too. I see all these studies about police yeah. departments and police officers and EMTs and firefighters, but who wants to study a dispatcher? Like I could give you a whole bunch of people that would love to be your subject matter experts because people forget about us. And that's fine because we don't need the accolades. We don't need to be standing out there saying, look at how great we are. We're heroes. We don't need that. We prefer to kind of hang out under the radar. I don't know, man. You got a line on the flag now. You you got your own thin line now. Yes. The gold, the gold line. Yes. Um, What's crazy though is like, I, I just thought about it right now. It's like, it's one of those things that's always in the background. Cause even if you watch the news, right, they're always usually playing a dispatch call on one of the stories, right? right? It's, it's one of those things like you don't really think about like, oh, another day, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. If I saw 10 stories about a cop, I'd be like, that's weird. There's a lot of cop stories going on right now. But, you know, you, you see the dispatch thing all the time. And you don't put two and two together. Like, Do you guys have a union or an association? I mean, it, like I, 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 being classified as secretaries for the most part, I don't imagine that you would, but it seems like you should just to advocate for things like federal recognition of your job. Most uh, organizations are usually represented. Uh, the problem is that some are just kind of, again, we're an afterthought, right? So they don't get to be part of the police union because they're not sworn. They don't get to be part of the fire union because they're not firefighters. So um, again, with being classified as secretaries, they get stuck in a, a union that is meant for admin. There are some sort oops, there are some organizations that will allow dispatchers into the police union or fire union. But for the most part, for what I've seen from different places is that they are stuck in a different um, a different area. However, there are different groups, um, advocacy groups, and then also national associations like NINA, which is the National Emergency Number Association, and APCO, which is one of the, the biggest international dispatch um, organizations, are working with um, Congresswoman Naomi, Naomi Torres. And she's a former dispatcher herself before she went to Congress um, back, back, back in the day. So they're working with her to push legislation on changing our um federal standing as to our classification. And it's gone um, gone to Congress a couple of times and then died. Uh, there's another big push right now to, to get it. So the advocacy and the movement is happening, but we're hearing about it in our dispatch circles. I don't see it happening. I don't hear about it nationally. We hear about the bad things that public servants are doing, but we're not hearing about the advocacy and the good things. All right. Well, doesn't sell. 
do you ever do you have the leeway to so like i'm going to give you an example it's totally not the same but i used to be in charge of a telemarketing team for real estate marketing sales mm-hmm. my, my best guy he never told me this but i started to notice he had off days i couldn't figure out why um but watching him i started i you know i picked up on that he was diabetic and there were times when you could really tell like he was having an issue, but it's not like he would come out and say it. So I started to kind of play around his situation where I knew like I would give him a different task. if I felt he was getting like a little grumpy or something or, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, do you, you see that sometimes? Cause I'm sure there are people that, you know, they don't volunteer that information, but. As far as uh, employees and different peers. Yeah. Like I, I'm just saying like, is there, is there leeway at all? Cause you kind of said, yeah, they're tethered to the desk and <laughs> you know what I mean? Like do, do people kind of observe things and know that there are certain people that can, you know, have <laughs> a little bit more of a load. So the, the cool thing about dispatch is it is usually a lifelong career. A lot of people don't pop in and out very often, you know, like I've been there 17 years and a lot of my peers have been there for quite some time. So it's not a job that you kind of hop around. So the benefit to that, and also um, maybe a detriment is that you really get to know the people that you work with and you get to know them, you know, what is normal for them and you can kind of tell when things are off. So uh, supervisory wise, if you're paying attention, you can kind of notice those nuances be like, Hey, how are you today? Do you need a Snickers? Or like, hey, I think um, I need you to go in the back and work on this for me. I'll cover your position. You can tell when they're getting frustrated. You can tell when maybe, um, like you said, they didn't eat right or they're super tired. You know, do you need, um, why don't you go take a walk for a second or give them a task to do so that I'm not saying you're not competent right now. You're not fit for duty. I'm just saying, hey, um, maybe you need a little bit of a timeout. I need you to do something for me. So again, it's uh, dependent on different organizations and different supervisory methods, but um, you are very much in tune with your coworkers and can tell when something's wrong or when they are just in a bad mood and leave them alone. Do you have any insight as to what's going to change for you guys once the 988 goes through? Uh, I don't know how much will change uh, because we do get a lot of uh, crisis calls or people who are in crisis. The first thought that people have to mind is someone's in crisis call 911. They might not know what they're needing. They're not saying, oh, well, we need a police officer because they're suicidal. They don't connect the fact that because of this problem is happening, this is the response I'm going to get. Other than the fact that the building's on fire, you know that the guys with the hoses are going to come like that's Mm -hmm. a given. But as far as people with mental health issues or crises or um, different uh, welfare check, that kind of thing. All they know is 911 is there to help. And I don't care how they get me the help. They're just going to call. Um, people think it's like information for the police department. Well, it's not an emergency, but this is the number for police is 911. Yeah. Okay. Well, you're not wrong. What, what hours are you open? (laughs) Yeah. Um, and, you know, and I don't fault them for that too, because in our, this day and age, you know, you have information at your fingertips. You just assume this is the the phone number and and everybody can transfer you everywhere, which is fine. Um, (laughs) but, um, with the, the new number, I still see us getting a lot of those crisis calls, but maybe we will transfer them. And it's, it's 
it's good and bad because we still need to evaluate if there's something that a police or fire person needs to respond on. Because if someone is in crisis and suicidal, but they have a firearm or a knife and they have um, a child in the room with them, I think I might want to send a police officer uh, in addition to secure, make sure like that child is okay. Um, if there's a medical issue where someone is suicidal and they started cutting, maybe they're just doing a little bit here. Um, they're not actually trying to commit suicide with the knife, but they're just doing it to feel. I still want to send medical to them because there's um, a life safety component and right. a medical component. So I, I personally think it's great for those people maybe who have ideations or they they're lost and they don't know who to talk to. Um, but those people who are um, kind of actively in that moment, yes, no, maybe I might, I have the knife, I have the pills. Uh, I still think like uh, 911 could still screen and then maybe transfer to the new number. Um, if they find that that person's not a danger to other people, um, you- it's not illegal to, to hurt yourself. You know, it's uh, legally, there's not much that we can really do to force somebody to get help. Are you uh, mostly doing that anyway with these crisis, mental health crisis calls where you're just you're transferring them to the, the mental health line? Uh, certain municipalities do. Um, I have experience with transferring people who are in crisis who are not a danger to themselves. They don't have any means. They don't have any weapons. It's just a thought that they don't want to be here anymore, but they don't know what to do. Right. And it's, it's kind of sad that you can go to the ER for a broken bone and get help like and you can go to urgent care if you have an ear infection and you're in pain, but the people who are in mental health pain, having a crisis, there's no urgent care for that. There's no ER for that. Um, especially like if you're not having a delusional episode or something, that's really, um, like a psychotic thing there, there's no like walk in to say, Hey, I need to talk to somebody for 10 minutes or a half an hour. Like, why don't we have that? Sorry Psych- to stray, but- psychiatric urgent care. No, you're, you're making a good point. We, we don't have it here. The other locales do. And, uh, we, mm. we would like to have something like a crisis triage center, uh, not to soapbox too much because I want to corral it a little bit, but, but what I've seen is the, the, the attempts that have been made at crisis triage center, CTCs, if you will, they, uh, they're driven largely by singular insurance companies and they, they don't, they're not open to everybody. Now, Nevada being dead last in most things that matter and an embarrassment to myself as a fifth generation Nevadan has still failed to make an actual financial commitment to this type of healthcare. Uh, we should have those things. We should have psychiatric urgent cares, um, we should have a state-funded crisis line. We don't. We have a we have a donor-funded crisis line, and they do remarkable work with with the donations they get, and they've been around for like sixty years. But we don't we don't have the the commitment, and and it's and it manifests in things like what we're talking about, which is our first responders and our dispatchers failing mm-hmm. to have adequate resources to refer people when these things land in their laps. Because, like you said, Mike and I had this conversation the other day where it was like. Where, where do people go when they need something? They call the cops, right? It's the cops are supposed to be this like ultra networked set of resources. And really they're not. And, and when we had Brandon Casanelli on the show, he's talking about how his, you know, the belt keeps getting bigger, but so does the metaphorical belt of the, the job, right? The role. And, and I think we just keep dumping this stuff and dumping this stuff. So, you know, back to 988, when it comes out, I, I think it's a great idea. 
how many years did it take us to get 911 into our heads? And then we have the 800-273 talk that nobody knows outside of our community. It's like mm-hmm. they still call 911. So it's going to be years and years, I think, before people switch over and find that number. And then when they do, uh, are there going to be resources in the community to augment that support? Or are we just kind of falsely giving people hope? I don't know. Here's my idea. Yes. I have an idea. It's kind of crazy, but hear me out here. I love crazy ideas. So what if there was one-stop shopping, right? People think 911 is and I'll be all right, which is true because I have a liability. If you call me for help, I'm not going to hang up on you. If I can't help you, I got to figure out how to help you. Right? So what if you had mega dispatch centers that had crisis call takers inside there. You had your paramedic people who do the protocols and um, do all the life-saving pre-arrival stuff in there. You had different dispatchers for different um, disciplines, but you have uh, community social workers that can take calls and can answer questions. You have this mega resource center that is not exactly police. It's not exactly fire. It's not exactly medical, but it is your one-stop shop for anything that community needs. And it provides information and also um, the support for police, fire, and everything else in one center. I think that was supposed to be Nevada 211. But but again, instead of fragmenting the resources into more Maybe we should just lean into going, no, call 911. Let's augment 911, right? And 911 mm-hmm. in the local area contains everything that you just suggested. That would be awesome. Then, you know, Aaron and Jake are sitting in the same room. Aaron knows that Jake does the mental health thing. And she goes, hey, man, I got a call here that has nothing to do with my lane because I deal with, you know, police and fire. But you deal with the psychiatric stuff, Uh mm-hmm take it. Or if you don't want to transfer, you just shout over to me like, Hey, who's the local blah, blah, blah. And I go, Hey, it's so-and-so. And And then you get back on the call, right? That would be awesome. And I think instead of like recreating the wheel with all these new groups and affiliates, affiliations and associations and whatnot, you know, another website pops up and now we've got resilient Nevada. And it's like, do we need this or can we use what's currently in existence? I think it's a great idea. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Because like we get that all the time at WTTA. Did Jake? How many times we do someone all the time? And I call you, and then you're like, "Oh, let me." <laughs> all the time. All the yeah, time. give me give me a whole lot more dispatchers and some time to train people. And because not everybody wants to take nine one one calls, they still want to help the community, and maybe they are just not comfortable with it, or they just don't have a fast typing speed, or want to deal with listening to people. Uh, being be in a certain type of crisis or like the fast pace of being a radio dispatcher because it is very very fast and hectic and can be scary really scary at times but you could have people there that are telecommunicators who are in the dispatch center who can um, be transferred calls as they're triaged and um, it would take a lot of the burden the resources away from the emergency part um, but you also have you know, those people who can talk to somebody right now at your fingertips, because people get very upset and it's really frustrating when you give them a phone number and they have to leave a voicemail or they're not open. Or, you know, I tried to to contact most about my, um, you know, my relative who is having a, um, a schizophrenic breakdown right now. And, you know, uh, 
I can't get them into West Hills and I can't do this, but you know, I'm afraid for their safety and they've dealt with most. I can't get a hold of most, you know, mm-hmm. to have those kind of resources would be really cool. Um, or, or even just have the, like, I just keep, now I'm thinking about all the numbers that we have. You broken down car, uh, trash, graffiti removal. Like there's, there's the, the Reno direct line that we have. That's for Reno. Where do you call for sparks? I got to go sift through the website and try to mm-hmm. hope I get the right number, which I never do. Uh, you yeah. know, like that would be great. All the all the civil servant response stuff under one roof. I think that'd be awesome. Well, the other thing too is the times that these happen. Like a lot of the instances where people call uh, WTTA or they write to WTTA and they talk about a story. It's always what happened last night. Right. And it's, it's, it's incredible how many services aren't open at night, but it seems like a lot of people go into crisis at night, whether, I mean, I'm sure there's different factors and variables that, you know, the nighttime can be lonely, right? Like whatever, but it just, it goes back to what you're saying. Like if you can't, so it's kind of a pain in the ass to find the resources. And then if you do, who knows if you can even get to them or they'll be available. Did, yeah. you, did your call volume go up in the evenings? Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, I think for the most part, a lot of um, places, but uh, call volume between 11 o'clock in the morning to 9 to 10 p.m. on a regular winter to fall, winter to spring day is pretty, it's higher than the rest of the day. But in the summertime, it's like 9 o'clock in the morning to 3 o'clock in the morning. Um, our get busier, but then like the peak time is 3 PM to, I want to say 1 AM. Hmm. Uh, and that's the other thing too, is like uh, a lot of people don't understanding that dispatching is a career. It has great benefits. You get a lot of personal satisfaction. Yes. Um, there are some negative parts as far as like uh, vicarious trauma and shift work. Um, but you also have to have a lot of, you have to have enough people to handle the call volume too. So um, staffing, is definitely an issue. So um, I think a lot of people don't understand that if 911 rings more than three times, they, they think that we're not doing our job, but in the reality is we've got 10 calls in queue that are 911s and somebody wants to um, just yell at us and we can't get to like, okay, what's the problem? What's the problem? You know, dealing and processing these calls. um, If they don't understand how they would be surprised at how many people are actually sitting there. So. Yeah, I was, uh, I was, I have a couple of questions actually, but one of them would be, have you ever had one of those days where everything seems to be like light and then there's, is there an anticipation of a really like bad call? You see what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. I got a call about a dog, a, bo- a dog barking. Right. And then I got a call about this and I take 15 calls and they seem to be light. Do people anticipate the, I know something's going to mm-hmm. happen. That's going to be awful. And I'm going to take that call. When I hear, um, okay, what do you mean you've been robbed? Where's the knife? Where's the gun? Where was he shot? Um, How big is the fire? Is the car on its wheels or is it upside down? You know, it's about to hit the fan. And that's the way, like somebody will hear that because usually that call taker's volume is a little bit louder. Either they're trying to get through to the person who's yelling or, um, they're excited. And because this is happening, uh, everybody kind of perks up. They're like, Oh, you're getting something over there. Okay. Let's get our phone. Like, you know, we're ready to go. Cause we know it's going to go down. Is that because a whole bunch of people all call in about the same thing? 
Yeah. So when we have um, big accidents, especially on busy roadways, the freeways, we get a lot of calls, uh, brush fires. Um, well, usually any type of fire, but brush fires have a tendency to have a bigger smoke column that can be seen from a lot of different places. So once we start getting one call about, hey, I see smoke, there's a fire. And then all of a sudden the ding, ding, ding starts going off and then it doesn't stop. Um, That's encouraging. Then you know that it's going to be. That's actually encouraging because I, I talk a lot about this uh, uh, concept of diffusion of responsibility, wherein in a group, people are less likely to act when something happens because they all assume somebody else is going to act. And so I have taken it upon myself whenever I'm driving down the road and I see an accident or whatever, even though it looks like it's not necessarily brand, brand new, like I didn't witness it and Mm -hmm. I'm on the interstate and I know that at least 200 cars have already passed it in front of me. It's staggering how often I'll call anyway and be like, oh, the people are on the side of the road. There's six people on their phones, three cars involved, right? Someone called dispatch. Nope. I'm always the first one. It's like, who are they talking to? (laughs) And so many people get upset when they call and like, oh, yeah, are you calling about the accident? I blah, 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 blah. Oh, yeah. Okay. We're on the way. Thank you. Oh, you have it? okay. Are you involved? Like, do you have more information for me? No, but you already have it. Yeah, we have it. We're on the way. Like they're disappointed that they're not the first one. Um, Like we give out a prize. (laughs) I wish we could like, Hey, you're the first time with one caller. You get an Amazon gift card. (laughs) I mean, has there ever been, is there any, cause I, I assume it's a pretty intense, pretty serious, you know, space when you're in there, but has there ever been a time that you could think of where something like really, funny happened and people start laughing or like a call it maybe it wasn't an emergency, but the person was really funny and you're trying not to like, like laugh. <laughs> like I think about the cops that called that said they were dying from eating the pot brownie. Remember that one? That was like one of the yeah. most famous. <laughs> um, I, I can't, can't speak to specifics obviously because, right. um, but, and then I do have, to get going because I have to pick up kids from school. That's fine. Yeah, we've gone really long. I appreciate it. But, um, but I will tell you that usually stories with naked people with various body parts stuck in certain places <laughs> are really good good mood lifter in the fact that we're grateful that it's not us. But at the same time, you know, we we feel bad for that person. We have empathy. Um, but at the same time too, sometimes those calls are just what we need at the right time. But yeah, naked people with various body parts stuck in places. Um, I, uh, there's so many, I'll tell you offline, but. <laughs> Sir, is the gerbil alive? <laughs> <laughs> well, did you get it out? <laughs> um, yeah, different, different questions. Okay. How, how much did he cut off? Oh, dear. Yeah, um, it would make a great book. Like if you guys could talk about it, like if you had like a hundred of the top dispatchers tell like each one of the you know stories under a comedy, under a tragedy, it'd make a fascinating book. Uh, when I retire, either a Netflix special or a book. Coffee so book. If coffee, you know any publishers. Coffee table book yeah. with illustrations. Yeah. All right, Michael, take us home. Aaron's got to go. Yeah, Aaron, thank you. Uh, how do you how do you tend to your mental health? Oh, uh, so I go to therapy and I'm not ashamed to say it. I don't believe that it makes me not fit for duty. I think it makes me more fit for duty and I will preach therapy counseling, um, 
mental health uh, clinicians or experts to the moon and back, because I think going to a therapist or a counselor should be as regular as getting your hair done or your nails did. It should be normal. It shouldn't be something that you should be ashamed of. And it's something that you should be able to talk about your experience because what your counselor is telling you on how to cope with your own life, you can use that and you can counsel other people because I've been known to do that at times too, where, you know, my therapist is like, you're starting to sound like me when you talk to people, which is a good thing. Um, but also to time with my friends and family and knowing that, the, when the bad things happen, it's, it is temporarily, like you guys said, it's not forever, but also to, I think giving back to people and helping other people find their own different path for wellness, whether it is therapy or, um, self-care or, um, you know, different treatments. Uh, that is where I find the most peace in myself is when I'm, I'm trying to help others make themselves feel better. Good answer. And the listening audience, if you're not watching on YouTube, couldn't see me nodding along, but I was in agreement. <laughs> Thank you. Please trumpet that from the mountaintops far and wide. I will point out, I believe Missy Misdemeanor Elliot said, get your nails done, get your hair did. It was the opposite direction. It's it's the, <laughs> it's the nails, I misquoted. That, I'm nails so that sorry, get done Missy. and the hair that gets did. Uh, that's okay. <laughs> Thank you very much for carving out the time. We really appreciate it. Uh, really cool stories. Very neat uh, look behind the scenes at what dispatchers do. And they need our support. Uh, certainly our compassion, but actual, you know, legislative support too is what it sounds like. we got to get you guys, excuse me, legitimized uh, beyond just a, a thin yellow line on the, on the newest iteration of the flag. But... Uh, I learned a lot, as I always do. I'm glad that we get to do this. Thank you to Arms Corps for sponsoring our podcast, uh, continuing to, to donate. Uh, we're always looking for more sponsors. Reach out to info at wtta.org. If you have questions, hit us up there also. And thank you to Zephyr Wellness, the company that I co-own here in Nevada, for continuing to allow me to do this. And on behalf of our entire Walk to Talk America family, we wish you all great mental wellness. We'll see you later. I know in our hearts that we are doing the right thing.